Amen. So thank you, Jonathan. Good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer City. We continue this morning, actually finish this morning, uh, the series that we've been doing since the beginning of the year, seven weeks out of uh, the six verses of Psalm 23, a very familiar, very much beloved passage of the, uh, of the Bible. Uh, and I don't know, but I've heard from many of you that this has been a very helpful series, that you've enjoyed it. I have too. Uh, and so I'm sad. I'm sad to see it go because next week we've been talking about all these beautiful God's care for us and his being a good shepherd. Um, we start next week a series on the seven deadly sins <laughs> because Lent is coming and that's typically a time where you talk about sin. And so uh, from the mountaintop to the valley of deep darkness. Uh, so I'm a little hesitant to see the series go because you, you've liked the things I've had to say uh, so far, but next week you probably will start to not like the things I say so much. Uh, but no, we continue in a series this morning, and we, we're going to be looking at verse 6. But we've been uh, doing this every week. We've been standing and reading, reciting together the whole Psalm 23, because we were memorizing it together as a church as well. And so I'd ask that you do that if you would stand. I know you just sat down, but if you'd stand again, and we are going to recite this whole psalm together. If you're trying to memorize it, do as much as you can. Don't worry. Be, nobody next to you can hear you. Uh, try, to, try to do as much of it as you can from memory. I think that's a good thing. So let's read, uh, let's read together. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's Word. One of the things the commentators pick up on here is that Psalm 23 is, is telling a story. Some even say that it's going through an entire year in the life of a shepherd and his sheep. And so we're met at the very beginning this morning with the truth that life is a journey. It's a story. There are acts and there are scenes uh, life is not a series of random and unconnected events. We're going somewhere. We're being led, we're told, over and over again in these verses. Now, isn't that comforting? It is to me to know that we did not end up here by accident. We've been led here, right here. Wherever right here is for you, right here in this moment, we've been led here every twist and every turn has been orchestrated by God, our Good Shepherd. Christians call this the doctrine of providence. That we believe that the Lord, our Shepherd, has gone ahead, to, ahead of us to prepare our days. That He has a plan for every one of us in the room. He leads us out. When we get out of line, He calls us back to Himself and, and, we, and we follow. He's leading and He calls back and He says, come with me and we, and we come after Him. He goes before us, we're, we've seen over and over again, to lead the way. And, and what we're told here in verse 6 is, the shepherd goes before, but then bringing up the rear, verse 6, there's goodness and mercy who follow behind. So the good shepherd's out in front, goodness and mercy 
are following behind. And it just made me think of Psalm 139, where David again sings that you'd probably be familiar with the little line, you hem me in before, behind and before, if you know the verse. You hem me in behind and before. And that made me think of, uh, of something that's a ritual in our family. We, we take a trip to North Carolina with my sister's family every October. And one of our favorite things to do there is uh, the Virginia Creeper, which is a 17-mile long railroad trestle that is downhill the whole way, so you bike down at 17 miles. If you're ever within, I would say, 100 miles of Damascus, Virginia, you need to take a day and go do it. It's marvelous. It's amazing. But, of course, between our two families, um, we have seven kids. Now, we started doing this when they were much younger. Some of them are much older now. But when, when we first started doing it with the seven kids, you know, you're about to go on a 17-mile, you know, downhill bike ride. It's, you know, if you get off the path, it's, you know, there's kind of, kind of goes down pretty steep pretty quickly. And so the very first thing you do is you decide which adult is going to be the one that's in the very front, right? There's going to be adult, an adult at the very front, and the rule is, the rule for the kids is, whatever you do, you're not allowed to get out in front. You're not allowed to go, you know, zoom down the mountain out in front of the adult that's leading the way. And then the second thing we do, so we decide who's going to be out front, and then we decide, well, who's going to bring up the rear? So there's an adult at the front, there's an adult at the rear, and, and, and everybody else is sandwiched in between, because that way, no one gets lost, no one falls off the mountain, you know, if a bike chain breaks as they do, there's an adult that can always come behind and stop and help. The kids, sandwiched in between the adults, keep the kids safe and they keep the adults sane so everybody can enjoy the trip. As long as you know. Because you can get separated and so forth. And that really is the imagery here. Life is a journey. The road is at times treacherous. There are wild animals waiting to pounce. But the good shepherd is leading the way, and his goodness and mercy are coming along behind to make sure we're safe. He hymns us in, before and behind. Verse 6 says that life is a journey, you'll see there, that ends in heaven. But I want to say something here at the beginning before we get into the details this morning, and that is that although we're taught here that life is a journey that ends in heaven, we don't have to wait until we get there to experience the very best of what heaven will be. It's interesting that Psalm 23 is read at gravesides and funerals, and I suppose it's because verse 6, you'll see, seems to carry the idea of heaven. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, David sings. However, the text itself hints that this means something more than just the promise of heaven. Literally, the phrase there is, I will dwell in the house of the Lord to the length of days. It means something like, I will live with God, I will abide with him, I will make my home with him until the very end of my life. And I would say to you, this fits the larger teaching of the Bible, that our destination is heaven. For in Christ, our destination is heaven, but we don't have to wait until we get there to have eternal life. That's a really important thing for you to know, that even though our destination is heaven, we don't have to wait until we get there to experience uh, eternal life. The first time I ever heard someone say that, uh, I, was, I was reading Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. And the argument that he makes in the book uh, was, and it, and it really kind of changed the way I thought about these things. He says this argument, eternal and eternal life, it doesn't refer to a duration of life, but rather it refers to a quality of life. So the adjective is qualitative. And so you read John 17, 3, for example, this is eternal life, says Jesus, that they know you, the only true God, and Christ that you have sent. So eternal life, according to Dallas Willard, I think, according to the Bible, is an eternal kind of living that we actually can enter into right now. 
It's not out there in the future. Right? You can actually begin to enter into the eternal kind of life in the present. In Psalm 23, that's, that's what we have here. It's a description of the eternal kind of living. Lying down amidst all of life's fury. Drinking from streams of living water and being contented. Wandering off from time to time for sure, as we all do, but always finding your way back home because of God's pursuing grace. Walking through deep, dark valleys, but without fear because there's a sense of God's presence that never leaves you. Feasting on the abundance of his goodness, even in times of leanness. The eternal kind of life is knowing God. It's abiding in him, making his love your home for as long as you walk the earth so that that begins to be your experience all of your days. That's what Psalm 23 is talking about. It's an invitation to that kind of life. And so we come to verse 6, which is somewhat of a summary of all that has come before. And we read, David finishes his meditation here on the providence of God. Surely, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And what we see here, what we're going to talk about this morning, you'll see in the outline that I've given to you in the insert in your worship folder, is there's a doctrine, and the doctrine really is composed of the two words there. So I want to talk about the two attributes of God, goodness and mercy, I want to make three applications of the doctrine that comes from those, of those uh, words, and then I just want to make one final, just make one final thought at the end of our time in Psalm 23. So you'll see two attributes, three applications, one final thought, the doctrine, the application of the, the implication of the doctrine, and then just one final little application as we end our time here in Psalm 23. Now, it should be said the reason we, I want to do it that way is that all theology is application and all application is theology. We separate those two things. I mean, if you go to a Christian bookstore, this is, well, they don't have, those things don't exist anymore, but back in my day, there used to be a thing called a Christian bookstore. Ten years ago, you could go to, 15 years ago, I guess on Amazon, I'm being, I'm being interested to see how the categories work on Amazon, but if you go to, you know, to a bookstore, look on Amazon, um, Christian retailers and, and booksellers um, separate. They have the Christian living section. Are you with me? And then they have the theology section. And the theology section is the books for pastors and those kind of professional Christians. And the Christian living is like Christianity for dummies that everybody else goes to, right? And this is how this works. Uh, and it's really unfortunate because, uh, you know, it really does do something. It's created this kind of anti-intellectualism, anti-doctrinal approach to Christianity that's really harmful, to be honest with you. At the, uh, you know. Martin Lloyd-Jones, for example, believed that the peculiar characteristic of a Christian is that all of his actions are directly connected to his doctrine, to his beliefs. It matters what you believe. All theology is application, all application. When you're doing application, you're doing theology. So this, this idea of don't give me a theological sermon, just give me some practical stuff, it doesn't really work. And so we're going to do the doctrine. And then the implications of the doctrine. So what's the doctrine? Well, look here with me. Uh, in the Bible, sometimes doctrine is a matter of sentences and phrases and even words. And that's true of Psalm 23. That's why we could take seven weeks on six verses. And I want to pay attention, really, in verse 6 to just two words. Those two words that, that uh, David uses to describe God's way of working in his life. Goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. They are attributes of God, but if you notice there, David personifies them. To add, so he doesn't say God's goodness and mercy. He just says goodness and mercy because it's, it's creating um, force and vividness. It's, it's, it's adding that to the image there. Goodness and mercy, follow me. The Hebrew, word, the Hebrew words are tov and chesed. I have a friend. 
uh, just, just as, as an aside, who had two beautiful golden retrievers, and they named them Tove and Hesed because Tove and Hesed were always following them around everywhere they went. I love that. Tove and Hesed. Now, what are these words? What do they mean? And I actually want to take them in reverse order. So look at mercy with me first, okay? Mercy, goodness and mercy, but we're going to go in opposite order. And mercy is the Hebrew word for Hesed. And it's translated here, mercy, more often in the Bible. Everywhere you find, particularly in the ESV version, if some of you are using that, everywhere you find the word steadfast love, that is the word chesed. And it combines, uh, the reason that translation is better is because it combines the idea of love and loyalty, or love and an element of sacrifice. So chesed is God's never stopping Never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God's stubborn love. That's my favorite way of putting it. His stubborn love. God loves stubbornly. Aren't you glad that God loves stubbornly? Stubborn people need someone to love them stubbornly. And so uh, in one of his books, Paul Miller uh, writes, chesed is one-way love, love without an exit strategy. Uh, When you love with chesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love no matter what the response is. No matter what, your response to the other person is entirely independent of how that person has treated you. Chesed is the opposite of the spirit of the age, which says you act on your feelings. Chesed instead says, no, you act on your commitments. The feelings will follow. So he goes on to say, love like this is unbalanced. It's uneven. There's nothing fair about it. I love that. What this means is that God's love for us, because it is chesed love, it has no beginning And therefore, it has no end. There are no fluctuations in his love for us. He doesn't get tired of you and me when we're particularly awful. You know those days? Anybody ever have one of those days of being just particularly awful? If you don't think you do, ask somebody who knows you well. (laughs) They'll tell you. On those days... On those days when when you're being particularly awful, he doesn't have any less energy to love you. He doesn't love you more on some days than others. He doesn't act on his feelings about you. He acts on his commitments to you always with no regard for your response. His love, listen to me, his love for us has absolutely nothing to do with our love for him. It's one-way love. That's what that word means. It also means that it's Calvary love. Chesed is Calvary love. It means God loves to his own hurt. That his death for our life, his sadness for our joy, his suffering for our our flourishing, that's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus befriended me when I was his enemy. He died doing good to me when I wanted nothing to do with him. There was no reciprocity of love between he and I. You know, they say marriage is not a 50-50 thing, but both people doing 100%. But the gospel is Jesus does 100% of the loving, and what percentage do I do? Zero. It's that uneven. And by the way, when I say zero, I'm being generous. It's actually a negative number. And yet he, does, he comes 100% of the way. That's what this word means. And so isn't this beautiful to know that God loves us like this, that this word is what describes the way that he deals with us and the way that he interacts and loves us. And so the spring from which everything God does in our lives flows from his chesed love, his love that never fluctuates, that never ceases. He's always loving you because the source of his love is not you. 
So everything is hesed, and therefore everything is tov. Because he is merciful, he's always working together good. So look there again, good for us. Goodness and mercy follow. And the goodness word there is the Hebrew word tov, and it means something that is it's going to be something that's good. Something that's pleasant, beautiful, appropriate. The best way I could translate this for us, I think, is goodness refers to a place of flourishing. It is the, t- the teaching is that, that God, because he is always loving me, is always leading me to places of flourishing. What the psalm forces us to confront here, I think, is our wrong definitions of what is good. So a lot of the work we have to do this morning is to redefine, reorient the categories in our brain to say good does not necessarily mean easy. It does not mean luxurious. It doesn't even mean safe. Those are American ideals, but they're not necessarily biblical ones. Good means flourishing. And what is flourishing? Flourishing is, is knowing God, living with a sense of his presence, being a person of deep character and conviction, and being engaged in his mission of spreading the gospel throughout the world. And that doesn't have anything, listen, that doesn't have anything at all to do with comfort, luxury, or safety. In fact, when good starts to come into your life, one of the ways that you can know it's coming is that the signal of it's coming is that you begin to lose comfort, luxury, and safety. Because those are the things that keep you from flourishing sometimes. So David says, Chesed love is always bringing about goodness for us, and the two are always following us wherever we go. Goodness and mercy, they're following me around all the days of my life. The force of the verb there is they're chasing after us. That's what that word means. They are pursuing. They're on our, they're on our scent. They are pursuing us so as to overtake us. We're being hunted. We're being hunted, not by a predator that wants to devour us, but by our God in heaven who is desperate to get his hands on us so that he can fill our lives with good things. He's chasing us down, which of course means what? Think about it. What's that mean? It means we must be on the run. He's chasing us down, but we're on the run from him. And so the image is something like this. Have you ever seen an old movie where there's a prison break or something that happens, right? The image is we keep looking back over our shoulder and, and uh, you know, we hear the hounds barking in the distance and we keep looking back and we know that he's gaining ground and we're running as fast as we can away from him in order to keep control of our lives because we don't know that it's goodness and it's mercy that are on our scent. He's coming with goodness and mercy, David says, but sin, sin is there and sin is always trying to outrun God. Sin's trying to outrun, if you want to define sin, it's trying to outrun God. And do you know why you keep doing that? I mean, he tells you, confess your sins that you might be healed, but we keep choosing to live in the darkness. Why do we do that? He tells us to lose our lives and give them to him, but we keep clutching and controlling, trying desperately to outrun him. Do you know know what's driving you? Do you know why you keep doing that? We... We do it because we hear him behind us gaining ground and we're scared to death he might catch us because in our minds we've escaped and he's coming to throw us back in prison, but it's not a prison break. He's not coming with a ball and chain. He's coming with goodness and mercy. You see what we're fighting for here? There's a lot at stake here. If something bad happens in your life, the temptation is to think, well, you know, in light of this evidence, 
Psalm 23 must not be true. But do you see what that is? That's reading Psalm 23 in the light of your circumstances rather than reading your circumstances in the light of the truth of the psalm. It's allowing your pain, and life is full of pain. Jonathan used the word crappy twice. Just to get the point across. Once wasn't enough. It's okay to say, I think it's okay to say that word in church. If not, take it up with him, not me, please. Life is full of pain. It's hard. But, but be careful that you don't allow your pain to affect your theology instead of allowing your theology to impact your pain. Because one is unbelief and the other is faith. David is arguing for faith. He was a man of incredible faith who endured horrible things and came out the other side a, a preeminent worshiper of God. I mean, you want peace no matter what? I mean, you want joy that can't be taken away from you? Do you need inner strength to handle the inevitable hard, inevitable, you know, realities of the hard things that come? It's all in that word. If you look there at the very beginning of verse 6, surely. Do you see his confidence? He doesn't just say goodness and mercy. He's talking himself into something here. That's what I want you to see. Surely, goodness and mercy. Have you ever been up against something where you just have to tell yourself, surely, this is goodness and mercy too. If you have an ESV Bible, however, look, look closely there, and there should be a footnote. And if you refer down to the footnote, you'll see that the force of the word is something like it could be translated only. Now, this is really important. David's saying only goodness and mercy. Nothing else. Everything God does is goodness and mercy. Every circumstance I find myself in, even the valley of the shadow of death up in verse 4, is goodness and mercy. Goodness and mercy in everything and nothing else. And that's the key, to know that whatever you go through, no matter how crushing, no matter how awful it might be in the moment, it is goodness and mercy, because all things come from God, and the only thing God does for his people is goodness and mercy. Nothing else. Only goodness and mercy. That's what your life is. Do you know that? Only goodness and mercy. Now let me stop. Because I have to say this. This is true for the Christian. Everything I'm saying is only true for the person who's put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And that's why if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should really consider becoming one. Romans 8.1 says, There is no condemnation. Can I translate that another way? There is only goodness and mercy for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ because, as Jonathan has already said, on the cross, Jesus was condemned and died for our sins. There is nothing left to condemn us. Paul goes on in Romans 8, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who can condemn? It's impossible. It can't be done because of what Jesus has already done. There is only goodness and mercy. But listen, if you're here and you're not in Christ, then there's still goodness and mercy for you, but it's not only goodness and mercy. There's also judgment and wrath. But if you look to Jesus and take your refuge in him, then that, then that little... And that little, that little word there becomes yours as well, only. Only goodness and mercy for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's the doctrine. That God is always acting towards us in goodness and mercy. That everything he does is goodness and mercy. But what are the implications of this doctrine? And here I'm just going to, do you know preachers steal things from other people? I hope you know that. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and it's true, of, it's true of pastors and preachers, too. Jonathan Edwards, 
who really can't be improved upon in much of anything that he did, preached his first sermon when he was 18 years old, and that's sobering for a person who does this for a living because it was an awesome sermon at 18. And the topic was Christian happiness. And, his, and what he was trying to describe is he says that Christians should be content and at peace no matter what is happening in their lives. And so if you think about when we turn to Psalm 23 in our lives, it's usually in very chaotic, very painful times to find some comfort and some peace. That's the theme of the psalm. God is a good shepherd. He's always taking care of our needs. He's always right by our side no matter how dark the road. He's always protecting us from harm and filling our lives with good things for us to enjoy. And so we can lay down, right? We can be content. We can be not wanting, even in want. And we can, you know, lie down contented in his care. And so in in the sermon, I mentioned Jonathan Edwards said that there are three reasons why we can live this way. And it's just three applications of the doctrine here that I want to give to you. And they're, they're a really good exegesis, I think, of Psalm 23, 6. He said these three things. Just load these up in your, in your imagination. Number one, he said the reason that we can live contented in his care is because all of our bad things will ultimately work out for good. Number two, all of our good things can never be taken away from us. And number three, all of our best things are yet to come. All of our good things, all of our bad things work out for good. All of our good things can never be taken away from us, and all of our best things are yet to come. So let's just, can we walk through those three things really quick? What did he mean when he said that all of our bad things will work out for good? Well, look back at Romans 8. It's why we picked the passage. I think there's a connection between Romans 8, 28, and 29, and and Psalm 23, 6 here. And in Romans 8, 28, the Apostle Paul says, we know. You see that again? Surely. There's the surely. We know. Everything, surely, what I'm about to say is true. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, let me explain that just in a few words. I want to say first, be careful. Be careful because you've got to know what that means. Be careful because terrible things happen to people who love God. And many Christians implicitly teach, and most Christians believe that if, if we love God, if we serve God, then we won't have as many ba- bad things happen to us because we love God, and he wouldn't do that to people that he loves. That's not what Romans eight twenty eight. it's not what Psalm 23 promised. I mean, don't forget, verse 4, the valley of the shadow of death. We, we live in a fallen world. Things are always falling apart. Christians don't buy into the sentimental view that life goes better with God. I mean, just think about David's life, the man who wrote this psalm. We've been reading about him, haven't we? Thinking about, I just, I just went back and thought about this for a minute. In 1 Samuel 17, when we really first, uh, you know, we meet David in, in verse 16. In, in verse 17, uh, he conquers Goliath on the battlefield, if you remember that story. In the very next chapter, verse 18, Saul wants to kill him because he's jealous. And so he goes on the run. And for all the way through ver- chapter 18 through, through verse 31, he has no home. He's hiding out in caves. His, his life is constantly being threatened. And then Saul, the king, dies and he's made king. But right at the beginning of his, of his kingship, in, in, first, in 2 Samuel 1-5, through 5, there are bloody wars that he has to endure and people dying that he loves to establish his kingdom. And then you get 2 Samuel 6-10. through 10. Five chapters. And they're all good. One thing after another that goes really well for him. And then comes 2 Samuel chapter 11. And that's the story of Bathsheba. And then 2 Samuel 13, Amnon and Tamar. And then 2 Samuel 14 through 20 is Absalom, David's son. 
uh, who wants to overthrow him and take his place as the king. So you have about 40 chapters, 40 chapters in First and Second Samuel about David. Anybody want to venture a guess how many of those chapters were good times? About five. That's about 10%, by the way. 10% of David's life was not like some catastrophic, chaotic, massive thing that he was having to walk through. Anybody else in your life feel like that? But what did, he, what did he sing? Even though 13% of what we have on record was good, and yet he is the one, this man, was the one who sang, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. We don't believe that things just ought to go right. Things are always falling apart. We don't believe that. If things go right, there's only one explanation. If something's going right in your life, in light of the fact that you're a sinful person dealing with other sinful people in a sinful world, if if there's anything going right in your life, there's only one explanation. God is doing that. If there is good, it's a miracle of grace. And yet, that's what, that's what Romans 8, 28 and Psalm 23, 6 teach us, that God is always working together things in our lives for good. That doesn't mean that you're promised better circumstances. Neither does it mean that bad things are really good things. I don't like it when people say that. You know, this tragedy you're going through, you know what? There's, there's, a, there's a silver lining to every dark cloud you say to somebody who's just going through the worst time of their life. Don't do that. It doesn't mean that bad things somehow mysteriously are, are really good things. It doesn't mean that at all. The worst day of your life is just a blessing in disguise. No, there are terrible days full of heartache and pain and loss, and they're terrible. However, in the totality, in the scope of eternity, in the whole of everything, we're promised that God is taking every bad thing and turning it for good. There's not always a one-to-one correspondence. This bad thing led to this good thing, and I see it, and so I feel better about how things are going. We don't always get a view of the good that comes from the bad. We're not promised that. We're just promised that ultimately, at the end of days, all things will work together for good. So the promise is that the really bad things are not hard circumstances. The really bad things are pride and selfishness and hardness of heart and self-deception and the belief that you don't need God. Those are the only things that can really hurt you in the totality of your life. So when God brings you into a hard time, he lets the not-so-bad things come in to cure you of the really bad things that can ultimately destroy you. All of our bad things work out for good. But secondly, all of our good things can never be taken away from us. And the key to, understand what the, is what, the, key to understanding is what the good things are. You've got to know what they are. Psalm 23 and Romans 8.28, you can't rip them out of the context of the rest of the Bible. Romans 8.28 and Romans 8.29, for example, go together. I mean, everybody, have you noticed, everybody loves quoting Romans 8.28. Have you ever heard anybody whose life verse is Romans 8.29? Everybody, thanks Bob, that's really how you should, I mean, no, that's, nobody, nobody picks Romans 8.29 for their life verse. Everybody picks Romans 8.28. And that, that's a problem, because the promise is not that everything sad will end up with a happily ever after, at least not short term. That's, what, that's, that, that's why Romans 8.28 and Romans 8.29 have to, have to go together, because Romans 8.29 is the explanation for Romans 8.28 and Psalm 23.6. And we know that because of the four, if you look there, all things work together for the good of those who love God, four, and then he goes on there in verse 29. So the teaching is that God does not promise you better circumstances. He promises you a better life. 
we're talking about joy and peace that isn't dependent upon circumstances, well, then better circumstances is never the answer. We need a better life. So what's that? And it's what Romans 8.29 talks about, being conformed to the image of Jesus, which is just another way of saying the becoming. What God is promising you there is that his work by the Spirit in your life will be to cause you to become more truly human and more alive than you've ever been before. The promise there is not that you won't suffer, but that when you suffer, that suffering will make you like Jesus. That the suffering will drive you deeper into God's love. That it's the very thing. That the, the bad thing, the hard thing that you're scared to death of is the very thing when it comes into your life that produces the joy and the peace and so forth that you need the most. If you don't have it, it'll ruin everything else. And so I wonder, just, just a thought, I wonder if you were given the choice this morning, pleasant circumstances, whatever those would be, a nice house, a good job, plenty of money, family and friends, pleasant circumstances, but no joy, no peace, no godliness. Or hard circumstances, but in the middle of those hard circumstances, deep joy and peace, love all around you, godliness, knowing God deeply, which would you choose? I know which one you'd choose. I know which one I would choose. And that's our problem. Romans 8.29 tells us what the good is. That everything that comes into your life is driving you towards. It's shaping you into the kind of person who can deal with suffering and loss and soar through it. Suffering can't take the really important things away from you. Christians, I know, who have suffered most have become more beautiful because of it. They come to know and to enjoy God more. They enjoy life more. They live more. I, I, I'm, I'm walking with people who live, li- experience more life in the few years God gives them after the cancer diagnosis than in all the decades before. Don't you see? You're, you and me, you and me you're, you're on a collision course with greatness. That's what Romans 8.29 means. That the bad things that happen to you, they can't keep you from that. All they do is speed up the process. You're being made a part of God's family. So the wonder of the gospel is that God works in times of suffering to drive you deeper into his love. You come to know him more. Knowing him is eternal life. So every bad thing brings you more of heaven in this life. You live in this life. Your life becomes more and more like your life will be in the next. So all your good things can't be taken away from you, don't you see? And then lastly, all of our best things... Jonathan Edwards went on to say, are yet to come. Goodness and mercy are on our heels, and they're driving us towards heaven, the house of the Lord, where we will dwell with him forever. Heaven is our true home. Heaven is the place where all of our hopes and dreams we have in this life will be realized, and the joys that we experience temporarily here, they're stale, moldy bread in comparison with the feast that we will have forever there. All of our havings in this life are wantings, C.S. Lewis said, but there all of our wantings will become havings. We will finally have the life that we've always wanted. All all that God is doing is to get us ready for that. Every heartache is like a little seed that falls into the ground, and in heaven it becomes a harvest of joy. I don't know how. I don't know how, but I know that's what God's word says. Now, isn't that great? Hello? Hello? Sorry, I just had to make sure you were still awake. Isn't that great? I mean, can you imagine if that were really true? Isn't all the stuff we've been learning from this psalm just wonderful? It's life-changing stuff. 
And that's what I want, where I want to end. I want to end with just one thought. Uh, and it's a play on words, uh, the words in verse 6 here. Now, I have to be honest with you and say, I think it actually, if it was the main point, it would be a problem because I think it's a mishandling of the text to say that this is what the text means. So, let me, just a caveat. But I think it is a really helpful application, and it's just this. Philip Keller, uh, at the end of his little book on Psalm 23, he was a shepherd, and he begins to reflect on the words, goodness and mercy shall follow me or come behind me. And here's what he says. He says, it's proper to ask myself, is this outflow of goodness and mercy for me to stop and stagnate in my life? Is there no way in which it can pass on through me to benefit others? There is a positive practical aspect in which my life in turn should be one whereby goodness and mercy follow in my footsteps for the well-being of others. Just as God's goodness and mercy flow to me all the days of my life, so goodness and mercy should follow me, should be left behind by me as a legacy to others wherever I may go. I like that. Now, he's a shepherd, as I've said, so he makes the point, and this was fascinating to me. He said that sheep, properly managed, actually benefit the land they're on. Their manure, of course, acts as fertilizer. Uh, They eat all sorts of weeds that would otherwise take over pasture, so they keep the grass really pretty. So if you have a piece of ravaged land uh, that needs to be cleaned up and restored, one of the things that you, that you do is you put sheep on it, and you shepherd them well. And if, sheep, if a flock of sheep are shepherded well, in two to three years, something that had been devastated could actually be restored and brought back to life. The sheep will take poverty and waste and produce flourishing and abundance. So Keller says, goodness and mercy have followed my flocks. They've always left behind them something worthwhile, productive, beautiful, and beneficial to both themselves, others, and me. Where they had walked, there followed fertility and wealth and weed-free land. Where they had lived, there remained beauty and abundance. So the question now comes to me pointedly, is this true of my life? Do I leave a blessing and benediction behind me? Do I leave a trail of sadness or gladness behind me? Do I leave behind peace in, term, in, in, in lives or turmoil? Do I leave forgiveness or bitterness? Do I leave behind me contentment or conflict? Joy or frustration? What about you? What's left in the places that you've lived because you've lived there? When, when you come to the end of your days, what will be left in the lives of the people you love because they knew you? What about our church? There will be a day when there will be no more Redeemer City Church in Winter Haven. What will people think of when they remember us? Will Winter Haven be sad when we're no longer here? Or will will we just be of little consequence? See, there's only one way to become a person who leaves goodness and mercy in their wake everywhere they go. You have to stop running and be overtaken by the goodness and mercy of God for you. And that's what happened to David. That's what he's singing about here. He knew the goodness and mercy of our Lord, the shepherd, all the days of his life, the days of hiding out from Saul in the caves in the wilderness of En Gedi, in the darkest moments of shame because of his sin with Bathsheba and in the heartbreak of his son's betrayal, he knew that all of God's ways were goodness and mercy to him. The question for us is, do we? Do you? Do you know that? That's the question we get to sit with in these last moments of our service, and so let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Father, I keep coming back to the words in the Gospels where I forget who it was who prayed, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And if we were honest, I think that's where most of us are this morning. 
we would say to you in these moments, oh, we believe all of these things we've been talking about in Psalm 23. Yes, something in us, something deep inside of us knows that they're true, but we walk out of this room and we go out into a life that's full of heartbreak and pain and meanness in other people, and it's overwhelming, and it causes, it causes our faith to erode away. And so we desperately need you to sustain in us a deep belief that everything that David has to say is true of our lives, even when our lives seem to be falling apart. We desperately need joy and peace, patience and love flowing from you into us so that it might spill out over us into the lives of the people that you've called us to, to the city that we love, that we want to be a blessing to as a church. Oh, Father, we want to be people who uh, are, a, are a torrent, a flood of goodness and mercy uh, to the people that we love, to the city that you've put us in. And yet, if we're honest, it, it's most times just a little, a little drip, 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 drip out of the faucet is all we can muster. But, Father, if we turn to you, you promise that you will send the Spirit and make us overflow with springs of living water. So that's what we ask. Help our unbelief. Conquer our rebellious, stubborn hearts. Catch us. We're running away from you. Catch us. Hunt us down in these last moments of our service. And grab a hold of us that we might come to know your goodness and mercy so that we might be people who are characterized by the same goodness and mercy too because that would be to your glory. And that's really what we want. We want you to be glorified in us. And so do these things for the sake of your great name, for the sake of the kingdom of your dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the sake of his gospel. Come and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not home yet. Uh, which means we walk in the wilderness, and as we do so, uh, the words of this benediction are no less true, no matter what, whether you're going out to watered gardens or whether you're going out to a desert wasteland. Uh, let these words speak uh, the reality into the situations for you. Don't allow your pain to affect your theology. Allow your theology to affect your pain, uh, and that's what these words are. They are good words spoken over you, um, and whatever, whatever might come to pass uh, this next week, what I'm about to say is no less true. And so uh, receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.